Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. So Nick, what is this podcast about? This is a podcast for people like us who may not be working TV writers yet, but who are trying to break in. Whether you're paying your dues as a PA, working with a manager to get yourself out there, or just slaving away on that original pilot in a Starbucks. As I mentioned last time, our first few episodes are aiming to give you a step-by-step guide, the absolute basics you'll need to start your journey to the writer's room. And today we will be talking about one of the most important decisions of being a television writer, and that is deciding whether you want to be a comedy or drama writer. And what we're going to talk about is why the distinction is critical and why you need to quote unquote declare your major as one or the other. First, let's quickly define the differences between comedy and drama. So I'm a comedy writer, Alex is a drama writer. Comedy these days blows the lines, there are dramedies, all that kind of thing. So I find the best way to think about comedy is as a half hour script. And the main two categories of that are multicam and single cam. So a multicam is that traditional shot in front of a live studio audience, laugh track. Um, it's a limited number of sets. They're on a stage. So think about Seinfeld, everybody loves Raymond these days, Big Bang Theory. And that is opposed to a single cam, which is, as the name implies, shot on a single camera out in the world like you would a feature film and uh, you can kind of go anywhere and everywhere the shows like you're the worst like louis man seeking woman all that kind of thing and then drama broadly speaking it's kind of like a one hour format with either the characteristics of a procedural something akin to csi which is a, a closed case of the week every episode or more serialized like game of thrones with a sustained narrative over the course of a season now in my opinion the real distinction between comedy and drama and tv is more about the strength structure in of itself, meaning the length of a script, technically speaking, like like a drama would be somewhere around like 50 to 60 pages mm-hmm. versus a comedy, which is probably what, like 30, 40 pages? Yeah, around about. I think the real difference stems from the acts, the number of act breaks, because uh, you got to sustain a narrative over an episode over like whatever, 30, 40, 60 pages. And within that, you'll have either like, let's say three acts per script for a comedy versus five to seven for a drama. And that translates to different story turns. I don't know if you agree with me, Nick, but I feel mm-hmm. like that's the main kind of like crux of the the difference between comedy and drama. Actually. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's almost like writing a different literary form. It's like the difference between comedy and drama uh, could be compared to the difference between a play and a poem or something like that. It's like, it's not just you learn one skill of screenwriting and you can apply that to anything and everything. You know, writing a feature is also very different from writing TV drama or TV comedy. So that's another reason why it is important to figure out whether you want to be a comedy writer or a drama writer and learn the format and the structure and how you actually do that. Right. And the reason we're like digging deep into the structural part of a script is because you got to remember a script is not the finished product of a television show, right? Like it's only a blueprint for something that's going to be produced later on. And actually we can dig a little bit deeper into the structural differences between what you need in drama versus comedy, right? Yeah, totally. I would say in comedy, there are certain things that you want to ensure is on are on the page. Uh, one of those, particularly in multicam comedies, uh, is the notion of kind of a certain number of jokes per page. And like the number that a lot of people throw around is like three jokes per page. So you want three solid laugh-out out loud moments on every page of your script in order to kind of keep that momentum rolling of the comedy. And this is, as I said, particularly true for multicams because they literally want to elicit laughter from the studio audience to, you know, 
um, to put into the show. Uh, but it does still apply to single cams. There are single cams that are much more subtle, low key, like I mentioned Louis before, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, any of those kind of ones that are just more of a character and um, built around like a low key, subtle narrative. And the comedy comes from the, the character rather than constant jokes and bits and puns and all that sort of thing like you would find in, in a multi-cam. Would you say that the, the key point of being con writer is the ability to heighten the humor within every scene, whether that means the situational comedy or like the prose or the actual dialogue and jokes? Would that be fair to say? It's certainly very important. And that's why you'll find that a lot of people who get staffed as comedy writers come from a stand-up background or an improv background or something like that is they are used to the, the ability to take jokes and rework them and refine them. And that is a lot of what you'll be doing as a staff writer is working on those kind of, you know, jokes on the page and things like that. Whereas, I, you know, I assume drama is much more of the narrative tones and that sort of thing. I was just going to say another thing with comedy I find as well that is unique to the genre and to the format is um, the pacing of it. And that goes along with this notion of jokes per page and that kind of thing is you want to keep everything moving along. Not only is it a shorter format in terms of pages, but everything needs to be moving at a faster pace. Whereas drama has I feel the ability to slow down where it needs to and have kind of like very somber moments and then it can have a fast-paced action scene. Comedy at least needs to be moving at an overall higher speed the whole way through. It needs to be kind of like... What you're talking about is more about the tempo of a script, right? Yeah. Depending on the drama you're aiming for, every genre will have a different tempo. So like something like how to get away with murder mm -hmm. will have almost like a net breaking fast pacing tempo yeah. mm -hmm. because it's a primetime soap and it needs reveals every single scene. Totally. And so you need to be compelling in every single scene you're going to delve into. Yeah. Now what compelling means is very different depending on what show, right? For comedy, would you say it's more it's funnier side of it when, when we say like compelling, right? Would it be more funny? Yeah. I mean, you need to be engaged with the characters in the situation and like you need to be invested in them succeeding or failing, you know, like anything, because that's where the comedy comes from is when all these obstacles are being thrown in their way and all that sort of thing. It's just that, you know, comedy kind of moves at a faster pace because you do have a shorter amount of time. So you're trying to fit more stuff happening in and you want to keep people's attention. And back on that note of, you know, the act breaks and, you know, how, what the pace of something on Broadway podcast is, that is why there are act breaks in the first place is because people were writing their scripts to commercial breaks and they wanted, you know, there to be some kind of like twist or turn or something to kind of capture the audience and want them to still be watching after the ads came on. That is less so the case these days because of things like cable and whatever, where you don't have to have ads in between these things, but they still retained that act break structure for a lot of them because that's just how scripts came to be formatted and how people came to be familiar with it and how it, it just worked better sometimes. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's also the same when you're breaking a show within a room, you're still going to have act breaks probably most times. Yeah. Uh, if we take the example on the comedy side of Master of None, mm -hmm. if you look at any script from Master of None, which is again a Netflix show without act breaks, technically speaking, if you look at a script from Master of None, you'll definitely see, I think it was three act breaks. Yeah. Like yeah. physical act breaks within the script noted down versus something like Silicon Valley on HBO, which doesn't have any act breaks and yeah. it doesn't have act breaks within scripts either. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's It really does depend on the show. But uh, an interesting thing about Master of None, I was reading an interview with Alan Yang, who was, you know, so the co-creator of that with Aziz Ansari. And he, he talked about in Master of None, they really only have an A story. And, you know, we'll get onto all this stuff more later in the podcast about delving into plot lines and all that kind of thing. But 
So in a typical comedy, you'll have an A story, the main kind of story that's following your main character. Then you'll have a B story, something like it takes up a little bit less screen time, but it's, you know, still an important story. Then you might have like a C story, which is a fairly minor thing. You can have runners, just like little things that reoccur. But the Master of None took made this decision to only have an A story following Aziz through it. And because of that, it affected the pace. You know, it feels like a much slower paced kind of thing. And it's like, you're actually with him the whole time. There's never any way to get away from him and his problems and to some other funny story. And that's how most comedies increase that pace is by cutting between the A story, the B story, the C story, and then coming back. And it has that frantic, frantic kind of hectic pace, but uh, Master of None is a little bit different than that. And going back to How to Get Away with Murder, I was actually looking at how they break their shows for a spec I was writing and kind of like reverse breaking every episode mm-hmm. of the first season and a few yeah. of the second season. It was kind of jarring to see the number of A, B, C, D, E, whatever stories they had because they have so many characters. Again, it's a primetime soap. Yeah. Obviously, you have kind of like Viola Davis's character and Annalise who has the blunt of the story, but you also have probably every episode 40% of a script is going to be dedicated to that case of the week. And then you have the rest of that screen time that's going to be distributed between every single character, the so-called Keating Five, who are kind of the five students following Annalise's like teachings. And each one of them has their own kind of like little scenes and micro arc within an episode, but yeah. I would not consider that self-contained by any means. Mm-hmm. Again, it's kind of like an ongoing serialized element of the show. And breaking down every script, it was kind of shocking to see that if you just went looking for who has a story per episode, you could go down the alphabet to like Z, basically. Yeah. I mean, you have like at least the King Five, that's five, plus Annalise, that's six, plus the case of the week, that's seven. Mm-hmm. And then you have whatever, like the flash forward slash like running mystery of the season. That's probably eight basic storylines right there. When you break an episode of that show, you got to understand that the King Five are probably their own entity. Yeah. Despite their own singular scenes, they all aspire either thematically or narratively to the same point. So you got to regroup that and that will bring you down to maybe A, B, C, D stories. Instead of yeah, just like, it's not always one character equals one storyline it's groupings of characters or units of meaning and story and theme like you're saying but it raises an interesting question do you think that the more kind of stories you have abc stories more characters all that kind of thing the faster pace the show tends to be because it has to to fit all of that in i actually think so on some level i think the pacing does come from character but it also comes from either the prose or the length of the scenes i think yeah and how to get away with murder has upwards of 60 to 80 scenes per episode that's incredible again this is like a 60 page script (laughs) (laughs) so and it has obviously like many kind of like montages within an episode so that definitely paces up Mm -hmm. the the script but I, I definitely think it's it's both a contingent of the number of characters you have and of the number of scenes you have yeah. in the script. So if you compare that to something like Breaking Bad, which I found was a much kind of like slower paced thing because it's often dealing with maybe just Walt and maybe Jesse or something out, you know, doing his own thing, fewer numbers of characters, fewer amount of stories that are being juggled at once. Do you think that that's you know, a slower paced show in comparison? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely agree that Breaking Bad is by definition a slower paced compared to like how to get away with murder. Mm. But if you and compare- it's on Netflix, which allows them to do. Well, it's on Sorry, AMC. It's AMC. AMC. I think 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I got confused I, I about ma- where it ended up. I think you marathon Breaking Bad on, I on, did, on I Netflix. Did. But yeah, I mean, even Still, in... Cable versus broke. Right, ex- exactly, exactly. I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. If you look at Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones has, what, like 3,000 characters every episode? <laughs> uh, the tempo is very different, mm. but they need to focus on specific characters each episode. They can't sustain that level of dramatic, you know, energy every episode. Like, that's yeah. not possible. So that's why you got, like, an episode, like, the battle episode that's only in one location and follows, like, 10 different characters in that one episode. Yeah. Because you got to combine all these stories in, in one place. And that stems, I think, from the from the tempo and, like, the, you know, what, what you were talking yeah. about. Yeah, and I would say that bringing that back to how that relates to comedy and drama format, in a comedy, we try to keep it simpler because we have less time to work with it and that kind of thing. So if you're looking at, like, Everybody Loves Raymond, your typical episode of that is Ray is the A story. It might be with, like, Deborah or with his mom or his dad or something like that. He has some issue there. And then there's maybe a B story with, like, his brother or his dad and maybe, like, a tiny little, like, C story runner thing. But the, the main thrust of it is, like, here's Ray's problem and here he works it out and here's how the B story intersects with that. It's not, we don't have another eight characters that we're cutting to across different continents. It's limited <laughs> setting, limited stories. So that's you know, a very different way of writing than trying to balance something like how to get away with murder. I'm kind of curious, what do you think is the comedy with the most amount of story? Most amount of like different storylines? Yeah, like ABC, whatever, down the alphabet. Interesting. Um, I don't know, like, here's one that I'm always going to come back to. I, I like to write a lot of animated comedy, and animated comedy moves at an even faster pace than regular comedy. And you'll find that the scripts are often longer because it just moves so much faster as well. It's very visual, it's very fast dialogue and all that kind of thing. So if I was to draw an example, maybe something like Rick and Morty, they do these crazy episodes where they're cutting between, like, different realities. So it's, like, multiple sets of the same characters in different realities or different dimensions and that kind of thing. And there's literally one episode where it's splits into like split screens of like four, six different storylines all happening at once. So if I had to give an example of a comedy that's trying to balance the most amount of crazy things happening at once, maybe Rick and Morty would be a good example of that. Anything animated, I think, is very ambitious. Would you say most of Adult Swim's kind of lineup falls under that spectrum? Adult Swim's an interesting one. It's kind of, all the shows are very different. There's some that are more traditionally structured and that kind of thing, particularly the live action ones that you end up with, like Children's Hospital and Mm -hmm. uh, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. And then there are the the animated ones that are just kind of like, here's a weird comedy concept it's like a dog that murders people right and so it's too much many, too many cooks <laughs> yeah basically like it's much harder to apply the traditional story structure to a lot of those adult swim shows and it's a whole nother thing we can get into at another time but some shows animated shows are board driven they are driven by the storyboards done by the artists and the artists come up with a lot of the story and then other ones are script driven and those are the ones that are more traditionally structured so we'll chat about that some other time right but just to go back to the kind of like the structure and like the breaking out of episode yeah. So I think the big kind of like difference also between comedy and drama is the forethinking that goes into a show. Not to say that, you know, comedy has like less thinking than drama. <laughs> in drama, you have, I think every season when writers come into the room, there's a lot of discussion about where the season is set in, what mm-hmm. the poles are and where you want to end up. Would it be fair to say that comedy is a bit different? It does or? a little less of that. So it really depends on the show. A lot of comedies these days do have 
some level of um, serialization. So just like light serialization. It's like, hey, we've got 13 episodes. By the end of the season, maybe some of the relationships between these characters might have shifted a little bit. Like people might have gotten together mm-hmm. or broken up and that kind of thing. But the most traditional kind of comedy and sitcom that you'll find is that the characters remain the same. There's no real character growth from week to week. Right. Uh, no one's doing a Breaking Bad type thing. The one exception to this is BoJack Horseman. But that's a yeah. whole different uh, that, ball game. I, th- I think uh, Raphael, the creator, once said, or like I said, multiple times that he wanted to do like a drama that was disguised as a comedy. Yeah, yeah, and that's what it feels like. It's no other animated comedy that I know of has had their character mm-hmm. fundamentally change like that over the course of a season. So yeah, like I was saying, most comedies you're stuck with the same characters who never really change for more than an episode, and so that limits the amount of opportunities you have to actually do those huge plotting arcs from season to season. A slight like counterexample, but like one of the comedies I really enjoyed was Parks and Recreation. And one of the things I really appreciated about Parks and Recreation was the kind of like the narrative leaps mm-hmm. forward that they would take. And I'm not talking about the literal time leap that they took at some point in the last season. But before that, like with Amy Poehler's, ma- like the char- her character, yeah. like they really pushed in all her emotional journey, whether with Adam Scott and all her like character dynamics with everyone around her and the evolution of those characters throughout like the six yeah, seasons. Totally. It definitely happens. And one of the things you'll find is that's very common with shows that go for that many seasons. It's like by the time they get to season five and six, they can't just keep rehashing the same situation. They can't just keep having, here's a new story of them working at the Parks and, and Rec office. It's like, well, cool, let's follow these natural things that have happened over the seasons of, you know, Leslie's now going to run for Congress or whatever it was. But I really doubt that in season one, when they sat down in the writer's room, they were like, all right, by season six, <laughs> she's going to be the president or whatever. Like they were looking at the situation very stably and thinking about the story possibilities within that situation and with those characters right. that are more episodic. You can look at like, the first season of Parks and Recreation, which is vastly different from, oh, yeah. from yeah. their own seasons. Yeah, Parks and Rec, I feel, was like a weird example for here's how it traditional thing traditional was, because they did undergo some turmoil and, and changes but i was just saying like from the perspective of the drama writer i did appreciate that side of parks and rec where they did evolve their characters yeah um, it's more and more common look even multi-cams these days are changing i don't really watch that many of them but just judging by posters i see every time i drive <laughs> past warner brothers it looks like they've added a bunch of female characters to the big bang theory, the big bang theory exactly. which is great you know um but that obviously must change the dynamic of the show and the setting and all that kind of thing and even like friends like they get married at some point and then the people break up and like you know as an avid watcher of big bang theory i will say that they do not evolve their characters that much especially like sheldon i think there's this concept of i don't know if you've ever heard of the term flanderization yeah basically the idea is you have a character that's kind of three-dimensional at the start of a show and as the seasons progress you kind of latch onto one of the quirks of the character and only write that character through that quirk so for example ned flanders who was kind of like more of a wholesome neighbor at the start of the show and kind of became this religious fanatic by totally. like in five or six yeah yeah yeah. that's they become caricatures of themselves by the time it runs on for so long you know homer just gets like stupider and stupider and all that kind of thing so that's what's more likely to happen in terms of character changes they become simpler and more one-dimensional unfortunately <laughs> 
bring that all back to what we're talking about, there are clearly a bunch of differences in the way that you approach writing a drama and writing a comedy that are not just tied to the the page count or that kind of thing. There are a certain amount of jokes per page that they expect in in comedies and that kind of thing. It's often three jokes per page. It changes depending on single cam, multi cam. But, you know, if you are setting out to be a writer and you aren't aware of the intricacies of each of these formats and you think that you can just apply the same techniques to writing a comedy as you would a drama as you would a feature, you're not going to really be hitting the right notes and people aren't going to be receiving it as well. It's not about either being funny or being serious. You need both aspects and both genres. Oh, 100%. Like, I think that writing comedy, you need a solid dramatic core to it and then you go about making it funny with the characters and the situations and the jokes and that kind of thing. You're not writing a bunch of puns and then trying to string a story between them. And to go to the writer's room side of things, those differences also translate to the job of being a TV writer. Oh, yeah. We were talking about what showrunners look for Mm -hmm. when staffing their rooms. Ultimately, they want specialists, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is particularly at the staff writer level when you are really just trying to get yourself out there and trying to be get your first shot at writing for a show. You need to demonstrate that you have something valuable and something specific that they can use in the room as a tool. Like they're looking to build a toolbox of different people and different perspectives that they can really bring to that show to make it pop and bring it alive. So if you are someone who is great at writing dialogue or brilliant at just coming up with joke after joke, or you really can really delve into a character and explore the character and have that come out in the voice on the script, then if your showrunner needs that, they're like, oh, we really need someone who's just going to be able to pitch joke after joke after joke. And that's very common in comedy. You know, you might get a spot in the room, even if the rest of your writing is pretty average. I also feel there's uh, several ephemeral skills that people should look into, especially on the drama side, things like your professional experience. For example, if you're going to work on a legal drama, maybe the showrunner is going to bring in someone with legal experience. If you're going to work on a genre show, maybe that showrunner is going to bring someone who is really knowledgeable about science fiction or space or whatever the Mm -hmm. kind of like the bend of that theme is. And the same goes for comedy. It's maybe a little less strictly structured in that not all comedy shows are like a legal drama or a cop drama or something like that. But even just they want to see people who have unique perspectives. They want people who have traveled the world, who have done interesting things, who have met interesting people, been in these situations that they can bring into the room, share them as stories and maybe like put them into the script. You just want something that people can relate to and you're like, it feels real. You're not just coming up with something off of thin air. Just to briefly wrap up that previous point, I think what we were circling around is the notion that you need to pick one or the other, drama or comedy, because when someone's looking to give you a job, they're not looking for an all-rounder. They are looking for someone who really does comedy well or someone who really does drama well. And as we talked about those specifications and that kind of thing, there's a great analogy that uh, I heard once that if your toilet breaks and it's overflowing and your house is filled with water and God knows what else, um, and you open up the yellow pages and you're like, you look at down the thing and you see two ads. One of them is general handyman, does everything like trims your lawn, changes your light bulbs, all that kind of thing. And then the other one is plumber who specializes in broken pipes and they charge the same amount of money. Who are you going to call to fix your toilet? Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. It's obviously going to be the person who is so focused on what they're doing. And I think you, you mentioned a point a little while back about you know, your samples, if you write a drama sample and a comedy sample and you take that to someone and you try and get stuffed, you try and get an agent or whatever it is, they're going to be like, I want to read one more comedy. Like I'd rather you brought me two really strong comedies so they knew that you knew how to do comedy rather than 
trying to do a little bit of each. You just need to kind of, at the very start of your career, you need to pick one and go with it. And then later on, maybe you can jump over. I mean, the example I always use is Jane Aspenson, who later in her career became a drama writer after being a successful comedy writer. But when you're first starting out, it's really important to understand who you are. Like, what is your story? I know it sounds kind of cliche, but it's really important that you figure out what your angle is because the agent, the fellowship, the showrunner, whoever it is, they need to understand who they are hiring for that job. Mm -hmm. That's really based on your own experience and obviously the genre and skills you bring to the table. So if you're kind of like tossing up, you don't really know whether you're a comedy writer or a drama writer. Uh, maybe you'd like both. Maybe you think you can do both. What are some ways that you can really narrow that down? So I think the first step is look into the show's you enjoy watching and discussing. And by that, I mean, not just like sitting on your couch, you know, binge watching three seasons of Veronica Mars. I'm talking like active discussions with your friends, with your family, message boards, whatever it is. And that will give you kind of like an interesting insight into the kinds of shows you will probably want to write about. And I think another really great point is find the shows that you connect with, the ones that you can relate to, whether that's on an emotional level, an intellectual level, or just like a personal level. It's like you can see yourself in those characters and those people. Like maybe that's going to be the kind of show that you would be most passionate about and you would have ideas brimming up from you that you needed to get out and write. I mean, that's exactly why Six Younger is basically one of my favorite shows ever. The series finale is always kind of the quintessential episode I bring up, mm -hmm. which one I believe is the greatest series finale of all time. And two is a really cathartic episode of television. Alex right, is oh. trying not to spoil it for us. <laughs> but no, seriously, it's it's a really cathartic episode of television because you've been following the Fisher family for what, five seasons? And then it ends in a very dramatic way. So you see kind of the whole evolution of these characters over the course of five years. You've literally lived or like seen them live their lives in front of your eyes. And it is a show truly about life and death. It really drew me into television writing because of the family dynamic. And that's the kind of show that I aspire to write, not just thematically, but also on the perspective of characters. Family is a really fascinating thing within TV writing is I kind of believe that almost every show is about family in some way. You know, it's a cop show that is a family. They're a work family and mm -hmm. they all kind of have different relations to each other, um, all that kind of thing. So whether it's a drama or a comedy, and in comedy, it's, it's also often very clear because it's literally someone in their family. You know, there are such brilliant things within those dynamics that we can relate to as viewers because we know what it's like to be part of a family. We know what it's like to be the son or we know what it's like to be the, the mother or that kind of thing. What were some of the shows that kind of drew you into like writing for comedy? I mean, The Simpsons is my favorite show of all time. I think it's the greatest show ever made. No offense to any of the, you know, your drama shows that you love. But, uh, can I, can I reach quit this podcast? Right now? <laughs> it's, it's a cultural touchstone. It changed a society and the, and the culture and that kind of thing. But, but beyond the lofty ideals of that, at its core, it's just such an incredible kind of engine for not only funny stories and, and situations and things to happen, but it's a great commentary on society. It was the ultimate skewering of American culture and the American family. And it even took the, the kind of family sitcoms that came before it and turned them on their head. And it was like, this is, you know, 
almost a parody of those things. Beyond just that, though, you know, you you became attached to these characters, maybe not in the same like deeply invested way that you do in a drama where they're changing as people and unfolding as you go, but just these kind of like archetypes in these people, like Homer, the dumb dad, and like uh, Marge, the like nagging mother, and Bart is like the daredevil troublemaking son. And you followed them, same again, but like even longer, 30 years or something. And, um, yeah. you know, you do become connected to them like that. And I just found one of the things that I loved the most about it is it's just endlessly quotable. Like every, particularly the golden years of it, that's kind of season two through to seven, nine, depending on who you talk to. Almost every scene had a memorable line that sticks out and that I still continue to quote at my friends and will exchange, you know, Simpsons lines and that kind of thing. So that was one of the things that really stuck with me is this, this idea of these comedies and these things that stayed with you after you left and became like memes, I guess, in like the early days of those things, you know, that you, you would you'd throw at each other. Like Austin Powers was another one. It was a really great movie at the time that I loved and inspired me and I would go out and pretend to, you know, be Austin Powers and quote his things and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, th- those things really stuck with me. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to write such an awesome script and scene and characters and dialogue that there are going to be like people the world over quoting them for the rest of their lives. Like, wow, how, imagine the feeling of that. And I think the second part of what makes these shows great is they're rooted in true experiences and oh, kind yeah. of like true life moments for the writers and even the viewers. The uh, Simpsons was based off of Matt Groening's family. It was literally, he was like waiting outside to pitch a show to someone and uh, came in and I think his idea for the show he was going to pitch wasn't quite going to work or something. So he just basically was like, oh, here's a family. And this guy's name is Bart. And Bart was just like him. And his dad is Homer. And that was like mm-hmm. literally his dad. And that was his family dynamic. And that's obviously been the case for so many family sitcoms has been someone's just literally taken their family and put them in a world and created endless stories from it because it has that emotional truth to it. It's like, these are real things that happened, real people that existed. And we can all relate to that in some way. The reason we're bringing that up is not just to like talk about Matt Groening for an hour, but specifically <laughs> oh, like if you want, we could, we could. This would be a very different podcast, but I think it's it, it ties to like the second part of how do you define if I'm a conduit genre? Think about the past experiences that you have and the things you want to talk about. Are those more dramatic or are those more comedic? And specifically, what is your take on those events? Yeah, certainly perspective is a very important aspect of drawing on your life experiences and that kind of thing. Is like there have been so many family sitcoms now that how do you ever get a new one of those up? It's the fact that you have something unique about it, something that is so intrinsically tied to you that no one else could possibly tell that story or replicate it. So what is your unique perspective on a show and on a world and on those characters that people is not only unique that no one's seen before, but also universally relatable. That's the great kind of like irony and paradox is that you need to find something that is brilliant and new and hasn't been seen, but everyone can also tap into at some deep down level and into the themes and the relationships. I'll just actually bring the famous quote of write what you know. And I think write what you know is misunderstood. I think a lot of people think write what you know means write about your job or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. write what you know is about writing that perspective on this universal truth. 
what do you know about being in love? What do you know yeah. about that first kiss or being fired or talking in front of millions of people? What is your perspective on that angle? And that is ultimately what write what you know means. Yeah, if everyone only wrote what they knew, how would we have sci-fi? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you telling me Cylons are not real? <laughs> but like, you're, you're a big Star Trek fan, right? Yeah. So like, what is it about Star Trek? It's obviously like they're exploring these brand new worlds and civilizations and things we've never seen. Right. So that's the unique element of it that people hadn't seen before. But what is it about Star Trek that kind of people can relate to? Star Trek, in my mind, is about the exploration of humanity. Space is the final frontier. But through these explorations, what we are actually exploring is humanity mm -hmm. itself, who we are as people. Totally. Obviously, sci-fi is intrinsically a metaphor for yeah. humanity, is intrinsically a metaphor or an allegory, I should say, for what we go through as people on this yeah. Earth. And I think Star Trek is kind of the ultimate example of the sci-fi television show that week to week explored what it meant to be human. And that's what drew me into the show. Yeah, when you come face to face with aliens and other civilizations that are starkly different from humanity, you have to then define yourself in relation to that. And it's like, this is what humanity believes in and what our ideals are. And this is why we're going to defend them and stand up for them. Or, you know, maybe we are revealed to be kind of barbaric or terrible in some way in comparison to some peace-loving civilization. You know, it's all ways that we can learn about ourselves as people and, and ourselves as, you know, the human race. Exactly. And to circle back to uh, the theme, I think Brian Fuller is a great example of someone who you know exactly, you, maybe you can't quite pinpoint what he writes, but you know exactly the Brian Fuller style. Yeah. You know exactly what J.J. Abrams writes about. You can yeah. pinpoint every big writer out there and understand who they are as either comedy or drama writer. 100%. You see those recurring themes with showrunners that they bring into every show they make. Regardless of how different each and every show is, a lot of them will tie back to something fundamental to them and what they want to explore, whether it's what life and death means or anything like mm -hmm. that. Like, what do you think if you had to take a stab at like what Joss Whedon's kind of like universal theme that he continues to explore, what do you think you could put that on? I feel like family is definitely a big part of that. Family is definitely a big part of it. I think it's also about being the odd man or woman out. Yeah. I think it's also what you were talking about, defining yourself against others or with others. Yeah. Obviously, Buffy is about high school, mm -hmm. but Dollhouse is, you know, about identity. Like, who are you as opposed to like who people think you are? You can kind of say that about anything Joss Whedon says, you know, the Avengers is really about like being a family and a team, but it's yeah. also about who are you as an individual compared to the whole. Yeah, it seems like it's sometimes often about like the the little guys up against the overwhelming majority as well. If right. you look at uh, Firefly and that kind of thing, it's this like ragtag band of people on a little shit in a little boat out on, in space up against this huge galactic empire who are after them, or it's like a little team of like a vampire slayer and her friends up against the overwhelming hordes of darkness and evil. The Hellmouth. Yeah, so um, yeah, find that thing that resonates with you, that thing that you just like need to explore on the page that you want to channel through these characters and, and put out in the world? Like, what statement do you have to make or what question do you have to explore? And maybe that will inform whether it's going to be best told through comedy or through drama. The three-word version is build a brand. Like, understand what your writing is. Because if you don't know, then somebody else will put you in one of those boxes. If I had to kind of, like, pinpoint what my brand is as a, as a comedy writer, it's that kind of, like, farce parody, satire. I like to take existing tropes and things that we know from pop culture and turn them on their head and subvert them and play with expectations. Because I've been so heavily exposed to all of that, I have all these things, these touch points to go off of and twist and turn. Uh, 
and I found that that's maybe why I wasn't that effective of a drama writer. When I first started, I thought that I wanted to do drama, but I was uh, d- doing my master's degree in screenwriting, and I was sat down by my kind of like instructor, and he's like, "Look, this is you know like the writing's good, but I feel like you're taking the first choice. Like everything is like the first thing that comes in your head, but to be like a really great drama writer, you want to think about the second choice and the third choice, and then, and then go with like the fifth choice, whatever the like the unexpected is going to be, or, or that kind of thing." Whereas I was always just like, oh, this is what I've seen a million times. Maybe this is what I should put on the page. This is the first thing that popped into my head. Whereas I feel that works better as a comedy writer when I can think of the thing that everyone's going to be able to relate to and pick up on and then take or find a way to twist that. it. Yeah, right. twist it. Interesting. I mean, for me, I feel like my perspective is that of, I always say I'm a stranger in a strange land. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an immigrant, you know, I always felt like I didn't really belong either in the US or even in France. But it, it is true that I do tend to write a lot about, you know, the outsider in. So that's definitely an aspect of it. And that ties directly to genre writing, which I also love. And that's a very kind of codified aspect that I appreciate. What you were talking about in relation to twisting things you knew, I also appreciate in genre. Genre has very clearly defined rules and and identities, and I like to play on that. So that'd be like my kind of like two cents on who I am as a writer. Yeah, find not only your genre that you want to write in, but your personal brand and how you can sell yourself to a showrunner or an agent or a producer as a writer and be like, this is what I have to offer that no one else has been able to offer before. That's not to be, again, reductive. I think a lot of people listening to this are going to think, oh my God, we'll have to write the same script over and over again a thousand times. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely don't mean that. Especially when you're first starting out, you need to understand how other perceive you and how you perceive yourself as a writer. How can you play off of those expectations? You know, how can you play it off in your writing? The more introspective you become, I think the better you are as a writer because you understand your strengths and your weaknesses and you can correct those. Yeah, definitely. And we don't expect that you're going to have all of these answers from step one before you've even put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keys on the keyboard. Uh, it, it took me a while to kind of like tap into those things as well. It wasn't until I'd already written a few scripts and I sat and looked back at them and I'm like, wait a minute, what are the themes I'm exploring? And then I could connect, I could draw the, the line between those things and be like, oh, wow, these are the recurring threads over and over. And I'm like, this is how it taps into who I am as a person. And I feel like, all oh, right, this is the kind of stuff that I write. And yeah, it's not going to be the same script every time. It's going to be different characters, different situations and that kind of thing. But you will find more often than not that people do go back to the same fundamental themes Mm -hmm. and explore them in different ways with different characters and people. So one of the main things you're going to be doing as a writer before maybe you even get a staff job as well is taking general meetings with anyone and everyone. So it could be network executives, it could be producers, it could even be showrunners if you're lucky. And, um, they are looking for something about you that they haven't seen or that they can t- like latch onto and be like, hey, I met this guy the other day and he was really interesting because he had this story or he came from here or the, whatever. Like that's what is going to make you memorable to people. And I think if you talk to either your friends or family or even like strangers who you met recently, people with whom you've shared experiences, you'll figure out what those specific elements people latch onto. For me, for example, like the fact that, again, I'm an immigrant, the fact that I won my green card, like all these kind of like unique experiences that I have that brought me here 
are usually kind of the flashy things that people are drawn to. Yeah. And the whole idea with general meetings is that people are getting to know you as not just a writer, not just as words on a page, but as a person. Because if you end up in a room with them, working with them 12 hours a day, five days a week or something like that, then they need to know that they can A, be friends with you and get along with you and enjoy your company. But, you know, if a showrunner is going to hire you, they're buying more than just your skills. They're buying your personality as well. And the fact that they're going to have to put up with you. So find that way to come across to people that is going to interest them and, you know, want them to spend time with you. And now let's look at some takeaways. I feel like we've uh, talked a lot about a lot of things. What are the TLDR of this podcast? Right. So at its most basic in TV, when you're starting out at the very least, you need to choose whether you want to write drama or comedy. And so that means if you want to be a drama writer, that's focusing on learning how to write one hour scripts in that particular format and structure. And for comedy, it's learning how to write the half hour scripts. The next step is really understanding the the process of breaking comedy and drama. That process is very different. You should understand what these beasts are and what those skills require. Some of the ways that you can figure out which of those you might belong to, what are the ones that you connect with, you know, personally? What are the kind of thematic or narrative elements that resonate with you about particular drama shows or comedy shows? And then also just looking at your own strengths as a writer. What are the craft elements like story, dialogue, being able to pitch ideas and jokes, build worlds that you think you could best bring to one or the other? All right. And let's finish off by talking about some resources or things that are related to this topic that kind of inspired each of us. Yeah. So instead of us just throwing like Robert McKee's story at you week one (laughs) or week two. um, Or week 10. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's maybe just give some examples of those episodes of those TV shows that really resonated with us and made us go, wow, I want to be a comedy writer. I want to be a drama writer. For me, I always, always loved the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror Halloween episodes. They were my favorite. I would watch them every year. I would record them and just watch them back over and over again because they were so heavily satirical and they would parody other movies in the way that The Simpsons, I mean, did that in their regular episodes, but this was just like very blatant. They were like short sketches, like three kind of stories per episode. And so the one that I'm going to refer to you is Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horror 5, which has The Shining, which is a parody of The Shining. Uh, Homer goes up to this hotel and has to stay there with his family and, you know, and he carries out like that. So Spoiler um, alert. <laughs> that's the start. That's It's not the spoiler. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, and I think the power of like satire and parody is that I saw this and a lot of the stuff that Simpsons parodied before I saw the original films. And so it, it was already creating these cultural touchstones and things like that to to latch onto. Um, anyway, so that's what really inspired me as someone who likes to write a lot of irony and parody. Right. And uh, for me, I already brought it up. It's the series finale of Six Feet Under. I think it's the perfect representation of what TV should be. Amazingly cathartic elements, wonderfully acted, wonderfully written. I would obviously advise you to watch the five seasons prior to the series <laughs> finale. Watch so, it all by next week before I next by, by next week, you have seven days. But so anyway, so like I was just saying that the Six Feet Under series finale, I think, encapsulates perfectly what makes great drama great drama. It was written by George R. R. Martin, right? 
episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Spoiler. A spoiler um, alert. Okay, so we just really want to thank everyone for listening to us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to give us a review, and we would certainly like for that, you can go to our website, paperteam.co. That's C-O, not .com. Paperteam.co slash iTunes. And if you give us a review on iTunes, that will help us get new listeners, which will build our community, and then maybe we can start giving you more content and more great things. And you can find me at TV Calling or at tv-calling.com. And I'm on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. I also have a link to my Medium website there where I often post some articles and, and things like that that you can take a look at. And uh, what will we be talking about next week, Nick? Next week, we're actually talking about meeting people. As much as writing is you know, often a, a solitary pursuit, maybe not TV writing so much, but uh, you do need to get out there and start making contacts and connections and friends and things like that. So we're going to give you some tools as to how you can go about doing that, particularly if like us, you came to LA from some strange foreign place and you didn't really know that many people or anyone at all. Stranger in a strange land. All right. So we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks.